Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Well, coming to our passage this morning, the little summary that I have decided to give it is as follows. As a paralytic and publican find new life in Christ, accusations against Jesus increase. To put our passage in context, we need to review where we left off last week. For the story today continues right from there. Looking at the story at the end of chapter 8, I was reminded of what the prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 53, verse 3 of his book. Writing about the coming Messiah, Isaiah wrote, He was despised and rejected by mankind. We got a glimpse of that last week, didn't we? On the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus performed an amazing miracle. He rescued two men from an incredible bondage to evil. Yet the locals, and it even says the whole town, begged Jesus to go away. They begged him to leave. They rejected the Savior of the world. What a mistake. What a tragedy. A dear friend of ours used to always say that Jesus is the perfect gentleman. He's the perfect gentleman because he will not impose himself on anyone. If people despise and reject him and don't want him in their lives, he grants them their desire. The problem is, the choices people make in this life 
carry over into eternity. Friends, the day is today. The time is now. Welcome Jesus into your life. Don't despise or reject him. Sadly, his rejection of mankind is going to become a growing theme from now on in Matthew's account of the life of our Savior King. This is especially true as the case for Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God, builds up in the coming verses. In our passage today, we're going to see a number of accusations against him made by those who reject him. So I believe it was with a heavy heart that the Lord left that district on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. Let's read Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over. And there we see a map of just where he was on the opposite side and going across over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He came to his own town. Matthew could just as easily have said he came to Capernaum, but he didn't. He says he came to his own town. Don't you feel that even Matthew was perhaps a little bit offended by the rejection that Jesus had experienced across the Sea of Galilee? So now he emphasizes that Jesus is returning to a place, not of rejection, but to his own town. But wait, is this his own town? Is Capernaum his hometown? Didn't Jesus grow up in Nazareth? Yes, he did. The sad truth is that even in Nazareth, Jesus had been rejected. The people there had turned against him. In Luke 4, 28-30, we read the following. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to a brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Capernaum has now become his own town. Verse 2. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, both Mark and Luke, the other gospel writers, describe this very same scene. They give a lot more details than Matthew does. And we might wonder why Matthew is so sparse with details in his account of this story. Well, perhaps the fact is that Matthew was not an eyewitness to this story. Maybe that's the reason he decided to leave the details to other writers. Possibly, he just wanted to give more space in his writing about the teachings of Jesus. So he chose to use less description when it came to many of the miracles of the Lord. We don't really know. Also, did you notice that there was no dialogue between the friends and Jesus? There was no request made, not even something like, Lord, please help him. Maybe they were too out of breath to speak. 
Well, perhaps it was because Jesus took the action before they could speak. It says, Jesus saw their faith. What did he see? Is faith visible? Is it something others can see? Isn't it just something in our heart? Yes, faith is deep in our innermost being. It's that place where our heart, mind, and will combined to form our most important decisions and choices in life. Yet, for faith to be real, it must be seen in our behavior, our attitudes, and our activities. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's fruit, there's root. Where there's faith, there's evidence of it in our attitudes, actions, and activities. So what did Jesus see? I believe he saw right into their hearts because Jesus can see those things. But what did he see with his eyes? He saw men carrying their sick friend on a mat to him. They weren't on the way to the hospital and they just happened to cross paths with Jesus. They believed that Jesus could heal their friend from his terrible illness. They had faith in the power of Jesus to, lead their fr to heal their friend, so they brought him to Jesus. Not only did Jesus see their faith in him, but in the act of bringing their friend to Jesus, he saw their compassion for their friend. They cared deeply about this sick man. They wanted him well. They wanted to do their part, and that compassion in their hearts drove them to action. We don't know whose idea all this was. All we know is these people got together and decided to do this. But there is no doubt. To do what they did required real teamwork, real cooperation. And they were willing to collaborate, to work together to accomplish this goal. They had to get their friend to Jesus. Jesus saw their faith in himself. He saw their compassion for their friend. He saw their willingness to pull together. And finally, he saw their perseverance. It must not have been easy to carry the man on a mat. Based on what we read about the sick man later, it was small enough to carry home by one person. So we're not talking here about a stretcher or some kind of wood-framed gurney. It was more like a thick cloth of some sort. The picture that comes to my mind is something like what happens at the beach. When someone is lying on a beach towel, sunbathing, and then suddenly four friends each grab a corner of the towel and try to run to the water and dump their friend in. And actually, I don't ever recall that working out so well. The person on the towel nearly always manages to roll out before they get to the water. So it must have been awkward. It might have been a little bit tippy. But they worked together, and they did it. They persevered. We don't even know how far they had to carry this man. But surely there were moments when they felt like giving up. But they didn't. They persevered, and they brought him to Jesus. And Jesus saw their faith. 
And he saw it demonstrated in their compassion, in their willingness to collaborate, their perseverance. And he was pleased. I wonder, am I pleasing Jesus? Are we pleasing Jesus? Let's take a lesson from these men. Do we have faith in him and demonstrate it by having compassion on those who need to come to him? Are we willing to work with others to see lives changed, to not give up because it might be difficult, awkward, or embarrassing? I needed to be reminded of this. Maybe you did too. And in our present time of isolation and social, social distancing, perhaps our main way of bringing others to Jesus will be done through prayer. But I remember a talk by Eugene Cho on this uh, chapter from, from Luke, and he added the idea of creativity because you'll remember in the Luke account, they actually opened up the roof and lowered the man to Jesus' presence. So creativity is something I think we can add to this list. So let's also be constantly looking for creative ways to bring others to Jesus in these strange times. Jesus was pleased. He must have been. Look what he says. He said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. In some translations, Jesus says, Cheer up, child. Your sins are forgiven. He calls him son or child. Why? This was not a boy. He was a man. Perhaps he was even older than Jesus was. But think about what Jesus had just observed in both their hearts and their actions. Faith, compassion, collaboration, and perseverance. Are these not traits that Jesus himself constantly established, exhibited in his life on this earth. Surely these people were people with hearts like his own. I would suggest that because these people exhibited the character of God in their behavior, Jesus was pleased and addressed the man in this lovely, intimate way. Also, with the words, cheer up or take heart, I think we can presume that the sick man may have been a little bit apprehensive about interrupting the Lord in this way. Maybe he was expecting to be scolded for having rudely interrupted. But instead of a rebuke, he hears the most thrilling words anyone could ever hear. Your sins are forgiven. Just a few weeks ago, Matthew taught us about the authority, a few verses ago, Matthew taught us about the authority of Jesus over demons and spiritual forces. Now he shows us that Jesus has authority and power to forgive sins. The order in which Jesus does these things here is rather startling, but it is fully in line with what we read in Psalm 103. Let's quickly take a look there. Praise the Lord, my soul. 
all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your mouth is renewed like the eagle's. Notice what we read in verse 3. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Do you see the order there? First comes forgiveness of sins, and then comes the healing of diseases. And of course, David is describing the God of Israel in this psalm. And in following this order, Jesus wants us all to know that he is none other than the God of Israel, the Almighty One, the Maker of heaven and earth. We should also note, too, that the main teaching of the rabbis of Jesus' day was that all sickness was because of sin in a person's life. We see this theme come up in the other Gospels. Do you remember the story where there's a man born blind? And the first questions Jesus' disciples asked him about that situation was, Lord, Whose sin caused the man to be blind? So by dealing with the root first, Jesus is addressing the greatest need, the need of forgiveness. So by dealing, the next step then is mere formality for the Son of God. But before that, there's another matter to deal with. Verse 3. At this... Some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Who are these teachers of the law? By the way, the title scribe or lawyer is, a, is synonymous with this term teachers of the law. They were, in the time of Jesus, the public teachers of the people. They were the Bible teachers of their day. They belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, but the problem, the problem was that they often supplemented the ancient written law with their traditions. And the result of this was that they obscured the law and made it ineffective in communicating the heart of God. The teachers of the law were horrified by Jesus telling the man that his sins were forgiven. And their only response was to say Jesus was blaspheming. To blaspheme is to insult God by claiming to be him when you are not him. So in their minds, when Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven, Jesus was insulting God by doing something only God can do. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus was not blaspheming. He was doing something only God can do because he is God. That's what Jesus wanted the people to know. And that's what Matthew wants his readers to know. As further proof that Jesus is God, Matthew points out 
that Jesus knew the thoughts of the teachers of the law even before they could vocalize them. Verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? It's kind of ironic that when Jesus looked into the hearts of the sick man and his friends, he saw faith, compassion, cooperation, and perseverance, and he was pleased. When he looks into the hearts of the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the educated, the cream of society, what does he see? Evil thoughts, no faith, and certainly no compassion. He was not pleased. These men were so by the book that they were blinded by the details and totally missed the message. So now, in the presence of the author of the book, their bankruptcy is exposed. But even in this, we still see the kindness of the Son of God. By showing them that he knew their thoughts, the Lord was giving them another chance to recognize who he really was. For who but God can forgive sins? And who but God can read people's thoughts? And he doesn't stop there. He gives them two more no-brainer chances to see that he is none other than the Messiah, the Son of God. By now, the eyes of the crowd have shifted from the man on the mat to the teachers of the law. And I bet they were starting to squirm a little in their sandals. The Lord continues, verse 5. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Good question. I don't know which is easier. I think they're both pretty impossible things for the average person, aren't they? You know, Jesus could have gone around just telling people that their sins were forgiven. But who would have believed him? Who would have had assurance that their sins were forgiven? No one. For people to be convinced, there needed to be evidence. So to establish without a doubt the fact that he had the authority to forgive sins, Jesus presents his proof by healing the sick man. But before he does that, he reveals his patience and his heart of love for these hard-hearted teachers of the law in the next verse. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This has got to be one of the strongest claims to be God in human flesh in the New Testament. I believe this is the second time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man. And there is no doubt that this expression carried huge weight in the minds of these teachers of the law. Look at what Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 say. 
In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. By referring to himself as the Son of Man when addressing these teachers of the law, Jesus was speaking to them in their own language. This was nothing but a bold and clear proclamation that he was Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's not doing this to antagonize them. He wants them to know him and to find new life in him. Meanwhile, our friend, lying on the mat, is probably fully aware that life, energy, and strength have flooded into his lifeless limbs. But he waits in quiet wonder and delighted submission to hear Jesus' next words to him. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. Don't you love it? So straightforward. He just got up. He was like new. Maybe he even forgot his mat. Do you think he had assurance that his sins were forgiven? Do you think his faith in Jesus was confirmed? Do you think the faith of his friends was confirmed? 100%. What a savior. What a king. Now look at the reaction of the crowd. Verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. The crowd? They responded in a God-honoring way. And hopefully, as they got over the excitement of this particular moment, The words of Jesus stayed in their heart, and they came to realize that Jesus was no ordinary man, but that he was none other than the Son of Man, the Messiah, their Savior, King. But what about the teachers of the law? There's no mention of them. I find that very, very sad. What more could they have wanted? What more could they have demanded? What other evidence was necessary? Their hard, proud hearts just would not soften. What a story this is. What a savior we have. And now that he has established his power to deal with sin, 
he is going to go on and declare that all sinners are welcome. So that leads us right into our next passage, which begins in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. This is great fun. The author of her book, Matthew, is now going to give an account of how he became a disciple of Jesus. But not wanting to draw any attention to himself, Matthew writes the whole story in third person. First, notice Matthew's honesty about his past. He owns it. He doesn't try to hide it. And in doing this, he announces that if Jesus, if Jesus would call a person like him to be one of his disciples, then nobody is beyond hope. You see, Matthew was a tax collector. And tax collectors in Jesus' day were deeply hated by everyone. By Jewish law, they were actually banned from belonging to a synagogue. They were even classed in the same social category as robbers and murderers. They were notoriously greedy and crooked. And it was common knowledge that they always demanded more tax than was required and pocketed the surplus. But worst of all, they were ultimately serving the hated Roman oppressors. So, on top of their corruption, on top of their materialism, they were considered traitors of their own people. And to this kind of person, what does Jesus say? Follow me. No negotiation, no pitch, no promises. Jesus knew his heart. He knew he was ready. And Jesus came to him and called him. That was enough. And the same power that got that paralyzed man up from his mat of sickness and disease got Matthew up out of his seat of sinful greed and corruption and into a brand new life. Friends, I wonder, are you ready this morning? Are you sick and tired of the materialism, the self-centeredness, the sense of meaninglessness, the constant disappointment of not living up to your own standards, let alone God's? I challenge you to quietly bow before the Savior of the world. His word to you right now is, follow me. I pray that you will say yes. Lord, I come. All sinners, even as evil as Matthew had been, all sinners are welcome by Jesus. 
And Matthew got up and followed him. William Barclay has some lovely thoughts on this. He says that Matthew left his tax collector's table, but from it, he took one thing, his pen. You see, it was not very likely that Jesus' fishermen disciples were very skilled with words and pens. But Matthew was. And the Lord used Matthew's skill to write this wonderful book we are studying right now. Isn't this a beautiful example of how Jesus can use whatever gifts, talents, and abilities we bring to him. Verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Right away, we see the evidence of new life in Matthew. The first thing he wants to do after meeting Jesus is to publicly show his new allegiance to Jesus and introduce his friends to his new master. Now, in Luke's account of this, he actually describes it as a great banquet. But Matthew, just in a humble way, describes it as having dinner. That's so nice. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciple, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Once again, the religious leaders come along to try and spoil the party. But I think they're a little bit gun-shy from directly asking Jesus questions. So this time they pick on the disciples and ask them why Jesus was eating with such a terrible bunch of people. William MacDonald points out, that if Jesus had never eaten meals with sinners, he would have always had to eat alone. I like that. Verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. When Jesus ate with sinners, it was not to indulge in their evil practices. It was friendship evangelism. So he goes on now and explains what he's doing, why he is eating with these people. And he, just, he, sa he tells them, just as a doctor only comes to those who are sick, only to those who need a doctor, Jesus, the great physician of souls, comes only to those who are spiritually sick or spiritually dead and know they need him. You see, the Pharisees considered themselves healthy. They considered themselves okay. They had no need for Jesus. It's actually very ironic that the self-righteous Pharisees fall into the same category as those people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Both groups, the Gadarenes, and the Pharisees despised and rejected the Savior of the world. Nevertheless, the Lord continues to challenge them. 
Look at verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. With this quotation from Hebrews, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus is highlighting the problem the Pharisees and religious leaders have. And he challenges them to understand the heart of God. The reference to sacrifice here is pointing to all the ritualistic outward acts and religious practices that religious people engage in. And the point is that all those acts of devotion are meaningless without hearts of mercy and compassion. He goes on, for I have come to call the righteous, not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is a summary of the mission of Jesus. And it's as operational today as it was the day he spoke these words. Because of his compassion for a lost and broken world, he left the glories of heaven and came into this world to us to call us to leave our empty, broken lives, follow him and find new life, eternal life. Friends, if you have not yet responded to that call, once again, I urge you, leave your old life behind. Get up and follow Jesus. And for those of you who are followers of the Lord Jesus, I want to just end with a little story. And it's about my almost two-year-old grandson, Jacob. A couple of weeks ago, my son Brian was on his knees in his kitchen installing a dishwasher under the counter. Jacob was alongside watching carefully and wanting to help as much as he could. After a while, Jacob kind of disappeared. So wondering what he was up to, Brian went to see what he was doing. Well, in the front room, Jacob has a little play kitchen. And Brian found him there on his knees with some tools, working away under the counter of his play kitchen. He was installing a dishwasher. As you can imagine, Brian was just totally blown away. It was the cutest thing ever, he said. Did Jacob say to himself, I want to please my daddy, so I'm going to go and copy him? Of course not. Because he loves his dad. Because he spends time with him, Jacob just naturally wants to be like his dad. Friends, to know Jesus is to love him. And through knowing him and loving him and spending time with him, day by day walking and talking and living for him, we become more like him. And others will see his love, his mercy, and his grace. Overflow, overflow through us. 
Amen? Amen.